Battle of Perryville. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll talk with historians Chris Kolakowski and Cecily Nelson Zander about the battle for the bluegrass, today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. This episode is brought to you by Civil War Trails, the world's largest open-air museum, offering over 1,500 sites across six states. Civil War Trails puts you in the footsteps of famous generals, freedom fighters, and tenacious women. Follow the great campaigns turn by turn, take a historic hike, and explore beautiful downtowns. Snap a signed selfie along the way. Request your brochure today at civilwartrails.org. Follow Civil War Trails and create some history of your own. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Civil War Trails, the world's largest outdoor open-air museum offering more than 1,500 sites across six states. uh, Request, let me see if I can get my uh, words out of my mouth, request a brochure at civilwartrails.org to start planning your trip today. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me from the great state of Wisconsin is my great Polish brother, Chris Kolakowski, who I am always delighted to spend some time with. How are you, my friend? Doing fine, Chris. Doing fine. How are you, man? I'm doing well. And joining us from the great Republic of Texas is Cecily Nelson Zander, Emerging Civil Wars Chief Historian. Cecily, how are you tonight? I'm doing well. Glad to be here with y'all. So now I feel a little bit like Wayne from Wayne's World, like I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy because I've got a chief historian and a former chief historian for emerging civil war. Uh, so I, I am definitely carrying your water because you guys are, are the rock stars here. Uh, and I wanted to get us together to talk about the Battle of Perryville, which, of course, uh, takes place in early October 1862 and tends to get forgotten about. But it has huge implications because it really helps shift the momentum of the war in uh, what my Polish brother uh, calls this kind of huge pendulum swing in the fall of 62. So, Chris, tell me a little bit about that. You know, how instrumental is Perryville in this larger picture? Well, I, I always start any discussion of Perryville with a quote from Abraham Lincoln from 1861. He said, I think to lose Kentucky is nearly the same as to lose the whole game. Well, in the summer of 1862, two Confederate armies under Braxton Bragg and Edmund Kirby Smith invade Kentucky with the idea of doing just that, is wresting Kentucky away from Union control into Confederate control. The invasion is ultimately stopped at Perryville on October 8th, 1862, which is the largest and bloodiest battle in the history of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and in many ways is the high watermark of the Confederacy in the West, because when the Confederates retreat from Perryville, It's a retreat that does not end until they're back in Tennessee and never again, except for cavalry raids, isolated cavalry raids, will the Confederates penetrate Kentucky, certainly not with any idea of staying there. So Perryville secures Kentucky for Union control for the rest of the war. And of course, three years later, the Union wins the war. So it's it's essential. It's an essential victory in that chain of Union victories that leads from the Ohio River to the Atlantic coast all the way up to Bentonville and ultimately Bennett Place in uh, outside of Durham Station, North Carolina. Now, lest anyone doubt that my great Polish brother knows what he's talking about, he has written a book on this. It's called The Battle of Perryville, A Battle for the Bluegrass. And do you have a copy of it you can hold up there, Chris? 
Give me just a second. Chris. See, because because uh, he, he had it with us earlier, and I want to give us the chance to make sure that we plug it because I'm shameless about such things. You got to say something so the screen pops over to you. Oh, he's holding- uh, there, there it is. There, there. you go. Excellent. It's actually the first book I ever published back in 2009. Still continues to sell well, I'm proud to say. Fantastic. So, Cecily, as we think about um, the Battle of Perryville and its its scheme in the larger thing, uh, how do you assess its importance? It's a great question. I think um, it's one of those really frustrating battles, and I'm sure sort of Chris can attest to this. It's There's really no winner other than, you know, people retreat. And so it ends up being a union victory because Bragg retreats, but there's a tactical, you could say that Bragg wins the battle. And I think for the soldiers who fought in the fight on both sides, they come away with extreme frustration with their commanding officers. And that's a huge um, kind of note that we can take away from the battle. We know that Bragg is not well-liked, but the union commander in this fight, Don Carlos Buell, is probably responsible for really forging what would becomes the Army of the Cumberland. He's the one that trains it for the most part. He's the one um, that makes sure it kind of knows what it's doing, takes it from raw volunteers to a real fighting force. And that begins at Shiloh, but I think culminates at Perryville. Um, and because of politics, which is a, an issue we should always be aware of within the Union High Command and some hatred between Buell and Henry Halleck, who'd recently moved to Washington to become the kind of coordinator for all of the Union armies. Um, Buell ends up out of command after this battle, putting William Rosecrans in charge. And the elevation of William Rosecrans, though we might remember him best um, for opening up a gap in the middle of his line, right where James Longstreet happened to be at the Battle of Chickamauga, uh, wages probably one of the most impressive campaigns in the uh, Tullahoma campaign of any commanding officer during the war. Um, so one key uh, sort of result of the Battle uh, of Perryville is that that Buell is out and Rosecrans is in. And that's really important. But um, I think we should talk at some point about maybe giving Buell uh, a bit more of his due for the part he played. Um, the other thing I'll note is that Braxton Bragg... Um, stays north longer than Robert E. Lee, who's almost simultaneously invading Maryland, Um, certainly longer than Henry Sibley, who is launching a sort of bizarre little invasion from Texas to New Mexico. But these all these things are all happening simultaneously. Um, This is one point in the war where you actually see the Confederacy coordinating um, simultaneous kind of campaigns across a huge map. And and that's a really important thing to pay attention to. And Bragg stays north longer. than either of those other two officers. And I think we often forget that. Of course, he also um, gave up Tennessee quicker um, than anybody else, but uh, we can come back to that. Uh, When I'm researching my book and I put it in there, I ran ran across a quote from a guy in a first Wisconsin who said it wasn't generalship there. He's talking about the battle and what, what carried the Federals through it. He said it wasn't generalship there. It was simply the fighting staying qualities of the federal soldier. And I have I have never forgotten that. And I use that often because I think it says so much and reinforces exactly what you're saying. By the way, if you want to know anything about the subsequent campaigns, I wrote this in 2011, um, Stones River and Tullahoma, um, which you alluded to as well. And you're right. It's, you know, Perryville. People look at it episodically, but it is. It's part of a continuum. You're 100 percent right. I was going to give you the opportunity to reach for that bookshelf again because, yeah, that's my <laughs> fantastic, fantastic uh, Tullahoma book. Uh, so, Cecily, you mentioned, um, you know, one of the important uh, results of Perryville is that it leads to the rise of Rosecrans. 
I have always found it interesting, though, that that Buell gets fired. And one reason or one of the implications of that or part of the context of that is Lincoln is trying to prod McClellan in the East. And the firing of Buell is kind of a shot across McClellan's bow to hurry up and do something. And McClellan seems like he's oblivious to that aspect of that action. Tell me about them. Um, I think that that's, yeah, I think that that's true because I think, you know, as I was saying, I think Buell's great contribution to the Union war effort is how well he trains his soldiers. And the same way we could say, if we want to give McClellan credit for one big thing, he forges the army of the Potomac and from a volunteer force to a fighting force. And they take on that identity. And I think you'd even find uh, army of Potomac soldiers in 1864 with Ulysses S. Grant sitting 10 feet away saying, yeah, McClellan was still our favorite commanding officer because they sort of had this attachment and appreciation uh, for them. But I think um, the point with Halleck firing Buell is, is yeah, because Buell had been criticized um, for, not fighting Bragg at various points during Bragg's kind of march north. So Buell, um, as Bragg is moving north into Kentucky, kind of mirrors uh, Bragg's march, but he never tries to engage with him substantively until he directs some of Sheridan's units to engage um, at Perryville. Um, and and he gets a lot of flack for that because this is a, a point in the war where Lincoln really wants to see some aggression out of his commanders. Um, he just cannot kind of get over the fact that um, he can't get anybody to engage immediately. And he tried in the summer of 1862 to put John Pope in place to do that. Pope fumbles the bag um, really sort of significantly um, at the Battle of, of Second Bull Run. Um, and so I think this is also Lincoln just looking for those guys who will be aggressive. Um, and he hasn't quite identified, even though Grant and Sherman are certainly making a name for themselves, he hasn't quite seen enough out of them to put them, you know, ahead of Rosecrans. And that's why you end up there. But yeah, I think it is Lincoln looking for aggression. Um, and I don't know, it, you would be speculating to say, but um, does McClellan engage more aggressively at Antietam um, because of this? Well, Antietam happens before Perryville. So no. But um, McClellan's done after Antietam also. Uh, now, now so part, of the, part of the big context of this, you know, that, that Lincoln's looking for this aggression is the Emancipation Proclamation, which he has issued in the in the wake of Antietam. So he's prodding McClellan. He's prodding Buell. Chris, um, is Buell sensitive to the political nature of this prodding? Buell is an interesting character. I find him to be a very interesting general. And I want to I want to piggyback a little bit on what Cecily said after I answer directly your question. Buell is one of those people that fights the war on a map. I would want him as my operations officer because he can plan and fight a campaign on the map extremely well. He is not very good at the human side of warfare. You look at some of the issues with forbidding his troops to forage, particularly when they're being shot at by guerrillas in uh, northern Alabama, for example, among including one of the one of one of his generals gets killed, you know things like that. And I always point out as well that when to lighten his baggage, leaving Louisville on October first, eighteen sixty-two, to march to Perryville, he reduces all of the medical supplies to like one wagon per brigade. And I always point that out. If you don't, if if you don't view, don't understand warfare in human terms, that's an order you issue. And so I think that's something, but it also means that Buell 
doesn't under appreciate Lincoln's continued prodding, go after East Tennessee, liberate the pro-union section of East Tennessee, go move faster, do what you need to do. He doesn't have an appreciation for President Lincoln. I will say Buell's fired twice. People tend to forget that, that he is actually fired um, in late September when the army is in Louisville after you know having basically followed, as you described, Cicely, followed Bragg back to Louisville. He's replaced by George Thomas. But the orders are not to take effect unless if Buell is in front of the enemy or actively planning a campaign. And Buell and Thomas takes that out and basically says, look, you know, I can't take, he hasn't given me any plans. I don't know what he's at planning an active campaign. I, I can't do this. So, so the orders are suspended. They're not revoked. And that's important because the sword of Damocles hangs over Buell for the next three weeks until he's, until it finally falls on him on October 24th, 1862. So, you know, he's, he's on extremely thin ice when he goes to fight at Perryville. And as my friend Ken No says he basically escorted Bragg's army out of tennis, out of Kentucky after the battle. And that's what cost him his job, you know? So there's, there's a lot going on there and and he's faded into obscurity. He's easy to caricature in some ways, but he had, he was not a dumb guy. You know, people forget too, that Sherman wanted him in 1864. Sherman requested him for the Atlanta campaign and writes about it in his memoirs. Buell refused to waive seniority and serve under somebody that had been junior to him. You know, so it's not like this guy fades into oblivion. He had some things on the ball, but was he the right man at the right time? Certainly wasn't able to manage his relationship with Washington very well, with Lincoln, you know, and it get cost him at the end of the day. And that raises a really interesting idea, too, the fact that Thomas doesn't get command of the army at that point, and he has to wait until the Chattanooga campaign before he's able to ascend to that. And, and we could have seen the Rock of Chickamauga uh, a lot earlier in a more prominent position. Of course, you know, that, that raises all sorts of, of uh, contingencies we can't really address, but it is pretty intriguing to me. Uh, Cecily, as we shift over to the Confederate side and talk about your boy Braxton Bragg, uh, and I say that a little bit with tongue in cheek, um, what's the Confederate leadership position look like at this time? Well, um, uh, no problems in the Eastern Theater. Uh, everything totally copacetic uh, with Robert E. Lee's armies. Um, as always in the Western Theater, um, things are tough. Uh, they're difficult, and and that's in part because um albert Sidney johnston's death um six months prior at the battle of shiloh his unexpected wounding and death um means that jefferson davis and really the confederacy has lost the guy that many think is their best commanding officer um and the response to uh to Sidney johnston's wounding is of course to put uh pierre gustav tutan beauregard um briefly in charge um, of the army um, Beauregard decides to take a spa day, essentially, um, goes on vacation, doesn't ask for permission. Jefferson Davis, who has about the shortest temper of anyone, uh, any, anyone in human history says, all right, you're out and brags in. Um, Bragg had acquitted himself fairly well at Shiloh. Um, 
he had organized, taken part in organizing some troops at Pensacola early on in the war when it seemed likely that that the war was either going to start off the coast of the Carolinas or off the coast of Florida. Um, but uh, he's a tricky personality and everybody knows it. Um, the only other conceivable option um, at this point is Joseph Johnston, but he's still recovering from the wound. He received at Seven Pines um, in the in the Seven Days campaigns. Uh, and so um, Johnston sort of waves off um, any approach to be in charge. And um, Bragg goes into Kentucky with a belief, um, and this is a, something that both sides do and are guilty of during the war, that there are way more people who adhere to their point of view in the place they're going than there actually are. Um, so Lincoln, of course, early in the war, believes there are tons of Unionists in the South. Likewise, Bragg believes that there are tons of wannabe Confederates in Kentucky who are going to flock to his banners. He thinks he's going to leave Kentucky uh, with 20,000 more troops um, than he comes in with. And people like like John Cabell Breckinridge are fueling this. They're saying there are loyal Kentuckians. There are people um, that want to, to come and fight with us. And so we just need to liberate them. And, and he issues a proclamation very similar to what Lee says when he goes into Maryland, he says, you know, we've come to liberate you from your union oppressors and and finally you can be be free. And this is not something that that Lee and Bragg are kind of inventing out of whole cloth. It's something that um, Stephen Watts Carney had done when he captures Santa Fe in the war with Mexico and, and Winfield Scott when he marches into Mexico City. There's a long tradition of this kind of idea um, in U.S. military history and that the Confederates are kind of adopting this. Um and, and I would think that, you know, John Breckenridge being a Kentuckian saying, yeah. hey, there are folks in my home state who want to join this. That's a credible source. Yeah, absolutely. But then Bragg leaves all his Kentucky units in Tennessee. Um, so he makes he makes a, a call there. Um, but I think uh, we see some of Bragg's um, sort of tendencies start to emerge in this campaign. He he places a lot of trust in other people to to he assumes that they know what he wants them to do and and this is really becomes evident with kirby smith because um when edmund kirby smith wins a big battle at richmond kentucky bragg assumes that kirby smith is then going to come join him and they're going to unite their armies and, and march north um you know to the ohio river and and kirby smith has never had an order explicitly to do this he's had some loose directives but bragg just assumes he's coming and never really communicates very well about it and never gives clear orders about what Kirby Smith is supposed to do. And then he's upset and angry when Kirby Smith doesn't show up in good time. And it's like, well, um, this is, you know, what you always tell your college students, you have to communicate, you know, if you needed an extension, you should have written me before the paper was due. Um, this is what kind of brag is missing. He makes a lot of assumptions about how other people are going to behave. Um, and any of us who have lived in the real world know that that's about the most dangerous thing uh, choice you can make, and especially um, on the field of battle. So so some of Bragg's worst tendencies start to emerge here, though, um, again, he does meet with some success. And you could say that militarily, tactically, the Confederates win a victory at Perryville, but but Bragg retreats. Um, and And that is the beginning of a pattern that will repeat at Stones River. It will repeat without fighting during the Tullahoma campaign. Uh, he won't pursue Rosecrans into Chickamauga following the victory there. Um, and he'll he'll give up Chattanooga, um, essentially, uh, by the end of 1863. So it's this really kind of 14, 15 month period in which Braxton Bragg kind of has it all within his grasp and, and just gives it up piece by piece. 
Hey, Chris, two points, two points I want to jump in on here, Chris, if you don't mind real quick, just to amplify some of what Cicely raised. Number one, Jeff Davis does brag and Kirby Smith no favors because he designates there's there's a supreme commander in Kentucky only when the two armies join. Mm -hmm. Until that time, they are, and the word, the exact word is cooperate. Yeah. So there's there's no command authority, which highlights the communication issue. In fact, makes the communication issue more important. The other thing that's worth pointing out is that this campaign is one of the is one of the few and relatively few in the Civil War that has not fought militarily, but it's also fought politically. Political factors are huge. And by that I mean the hearts and minds of the Kentucky populace. The Kentucky legislature in 1861 passed what they called the Bloody Bill, which is um if you join the Confederacy and leave the state, all your property is forfeit, which includes slaves, includes horse farms, includes all kinds of things. So that puts a significant price. Uh, you know, the stakes of joining the Confederacy are very high. So when these Kentucky, when these Confederate armies arrive in Kentucky, as long as Buell's army is undefeated in Louisville or anywhere in Kentucky, the population is going to sit on the fence. In fact, I forget, was one of... Uh, Bragg's generals said their their hearts are with us. Talking about the Kentucky population, their hearts are with us, but their bluegrass and fat grass cattle is against us. That's what they're talking about, though. And when you think about it from the perspective, even if you're a pro-Confederate Kentuckian, but if that's the wages and there's no guarantee that these armies are going to stay until they, you know, and, until this campaign is decided. You know, people forget, too, that Bragg, you know, they had the Kentucky Confederate government that was arriving in Frankfurt. You know, they installed, they had an installation ceremony for the governor on October 4th. It was crashed by federal troops. But had that not happened, October 15th, the Kentucky Loyal General Assembly was going to meet in Frankfurt. And you know what their first job was, their first order of business, secession having been voted on in Russellville the previous year? Conscription. So, you know, this is this it, when you look at this campaign, it is it has it operates on many facets on a many levels, unlike most other campaigns of the Civil War, just because of that aspect. It's a hearts and minds campaign, to borrow a phrase from the 20th century, as much as it is a military campaign for both sides. Especially I'm seeing a lot of nodding on your point. Anything you want to parlay off there? And just, the, you know, the other thing, if you zoom out to the kind of national level, so zoom out from Kentucky to the to the national level, um, there's a midterm election coming up uh, in November in the United States and a whole new Congress, the House of Representatives is going to be elected. And and Lincoln has sort of tentatively said he's going to pursue emancipation. And the reason Robert E. Lee goes to Antietam, we know and we teach is that he's trying to disrupt um, any goodwill toward the Republicans by getting Confederate troops on Union soil. And then and Bragg's campaign is even closer to the election date. So just keep that sort of national picture in mind, too, is that that these events, if the Confederates are successful, even at achieving uh, a, a, a slim portion of, of their sort of grand objective, um, they could really disrupt uh, Lincoln's ability to govern um, if they can convince um, enough people, especially in that middle border region that that region around the ohio river where the copperhead sentiment is starting to foment and where you're starting to get some real opposition to lincoln uh, which which includes kentucky 
And that could be significant if you can just sort of, you know, just spur that along uh, on Bragg's part. Chris, I want to go back to something that Cicely had said a second ago when she was talking about Bragg and and kind of this this campaign starts to bring out some of his worst tendencies. But this is kind of a clean slate for him in some respects in that he inherits command in the wake of Shiloh. So he's sort of cleaning up the mess of, of Johnston and Beauregard. And, and when he gets himself extracted out of Mississippi, now he sort of gets to set his own agenda and and kind of set the tone for his army, for his command structure. Uh this is going to be the first of a lot of problems for him, um, you know, and this is going to be sort of the genesis of what becomes this ongoing, you know, terrible situation with the, the command. Is there a moment where if he had done something differently, it could have turned out differently or is just Bragg going to be Bragg? I, that's, that's a very difficult question. Books have been written trying to answer that question. Um, I will say I will say two things. Having having written two books that involve the generalship of Braxton Bragg, there are two things that show up in Kentucky but become even more of an issue down the road. The first one is that he can't think more than one move ahead. You look at most of the great generals, I would argue even most of the great leaders, no matter what your field is, you can think several moves ahead and have a vision out into the future of, of what's going to happen and what might happen to you and things of that nature. Bragg can't do that. And the corollary to that, particularly in Kentucky, is once he gets an idea in his head, I always tell people on my when I do staff rides down at Perryville, I said Bragg never met a piece of intelligence in Kentucky that he didn't want to quibble with because he had this specific idea of how it was going to go. And then when it didn't go that way, he had trouble adjusting. Like when the Kentuckians, um, if you read his correspondence back to Jeff Davis, when the Kentuckians don't join, you know, he gets real angry and starts, you know, maybe we ought to abandon Kentucky and all this other stuff. You know, so there's this, this erratic nature and he can't think more than one move ahead. So it creates, a, he's an unsteady hand at the top. And then the second thing I would add is personality. Um, you know, and one of the best examples is when he he's away from the army when Buell leaves Louisville on October 1st, 1862. Leonidas Polk, who's the senior officer at Bardstown, is in command of the 30,000 men of the army. Polk is ordered to leave and to move toward Lexington to join with Kirby Smith's army. But he, on his own initiative, says, you know what, I'm going to fall back into central Kentucky, protect our supply base, because I think the main body of the Union Army is against me, not against Bragg, like Bragg thinks. And Polk is right. At the time, Bragg said nothing. Pretty much endorsed, by, by his silence, endorsed the move. Later in the winter of 1863, tries to court-martial Polk for disobedience of orders. And so what you've got is you've, you've got this the seeds planted of this, corro I call it corrosion of an army in my Tullahoma book, about the corrosion of relationships in the high command. And from there, you know, when, when you go to Perryville, there's that famous thing in the morning of the 8th, Bragg orders Polk to attack, still thinking that the main body was is further north. Polk realizes it's not. Bragg angry rides down, basically overrides both Polk and Hardy and says, we're going to attack anyway. And I want you to attack them, which is McCook's Northern wing of Buell's army. And it's only late in the evening that Bragg finally figures out what's going on. But by then, you know, 
that's made a strong impression on both of his chief infantry subordinates, Polk and Hardy, and foreshadows problems down the road. And so in many, actually, when I wrote my Stones River book, I wasn't planning on doing a lot on Kentucky because I'd already said it. And then I realized that to truly understand what happens to the Army of Tennessee in 1863, you have to start in Kentucky in the fall of 1862. And, and I think the converse of that is understanding what happens in 63 helps us understand 62 because they write so many of their reports after Stones River, which colors their perceptions of what had happened months before. So what we read about Perryville is influenced by what happened at Stones River. Do you know what the date of the last Perryville report is? June 21st, 1863, 72 hours before the start of the Tullahoma campaign. And by the way, some of the best correspondence, because the, the official records, all the correspondence related to the potential court-martial of Polk are in the Perryville volume. So there's some really fun and really interesting, fun, de depressing, depending on your perspective, interesting correspondence among these generals. Um, and in fact, there's a line in there where Hardy says, uh, or Polk says I, to Hardy, I know you said it's just as important to watch Murfreesboro as it is Tullahoma. What he means is, which is the greater enemy? The Federals in Murfreesboro, this is the summer of 1863, or our own boss back in Tullahoma. That's huge, but it's in the Perryville volume. It's not in the volume that you'd expect because you're right, the Catching up on the paperwork rips all those scabs right off again. When you talk about, oh, the fun stuff. I don't know if Polk would have characterized. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said, depending on your perspective, Chris. And Cecily, you know, as you sift through that sort of documentary evidence and trace its its provenance and its dates, that's a huge challenge. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I think. Um, and it's amazing you see it with everyone um and it's not unique to to brag and polk um though they might have sort of sharpened their pencils a little more than than others but it's with any army and any sort of commander because when the fog of battle kind of dissipates you start so you see the same thing with john pope who initially has nothing against fitz john border um in the sort of immediate aftermath of the second bull run and then he's like hey wait a second i think i can blame this guy um and and it's this it's a similar thing like fitz john porter who 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 had done pretty well and was pretty well liked gets court martialed right and then it's not till a decade later that that they sort of say hey maybe we should take another look at this and you get a, another set of evidence about sort of rescinding that court martial of Porter right so it can go on and on um one of the remarkable things I think um and one of the great challenges of studying Bragg is um despite being a founding member of the Southern Historical Society papers he never wrote anything really postbellum about uh at least for public consumption about his time in command of the army of tennessee uh his time during the war um he never took up his pen to defend himself and i've always kind of wondered um whether he just wanted to let the wartime evidence do the talking um you know whether he had writer's block which you know sympathy empathy we've all been there um but he really never um he really never uh, tried to defend himself, um, uh, which is which is pretty amazing for a generation of guys who used history to try and get right with um, them, with their colleagues, with the historical record, you know, all these kinds of things. I think um, just talking of Bragg and Polk, 
Um, of course, uh, Edward Port Alexander, as he always does, has the best commentary on both of them uh, in terms of Polk. Uh, God made a bishop, but he didn't make a general. Um, and Alexander describing Braxton Bragg trying to read a map to Chris's point, like he he really was playing checkers when everybody else was playing chess in terms of being able to see things coming. He would hold down his position with one finger and move the map in a circle around because otherwise he'd lose track of where he was. And Alexander was just, you know, this guy doesn't have it um, kind of a deal. So but but yeah, I think that that documentary evidence um, is fascinating. But Bragg and I think to some uh, degree Buell, they don't they don't try to defend themselves. Um, and I always find it interesting those who choose to do that and, and those who don't. And I I can't help but wonder if Bragg thought it just wasn't going to go his way no matter no matter how ardently or passionately he argued his case and that's pretty extraordinary in an age when everyone is vociferously arguing their point and and getting their position on on the page um chris let's kind of zoom in a little bit we've talked a lot about the context but maybe you could give us just a quick rundown of what actually happens in the perryville campaign let's see how to condense 10 weeks into about two minutes <laughs> here goes so two two Confederate armies out of Knoxville, the Department of East Tennessee, 15,000 men under Edmund Kirby Smith, later renamed the Army of Kentucky, move north mid-August up uh, into, into central bluegrass, win the Battle of Richmond, 29th, 30th August, 1862, same day that Lee is winning second Manassas, by the way, or second Bull Run. They enter Lexington, enter Frankfurt, September 4th, for only capital of a loyal state captured by the Confederates during the war and push patrols as far as the defenses of Cincinnati and the defenses of Louisville. And fun fact for all you Gettysburg fans, the commander of the probe to Cincinnati is Harry Heath, who will command, who will command the lead division on the first day at Gettysburg a year later. Meanwhile, Bra uh, Bragg's army moves up through middle Tennessee into the central Kentucky area, uh, followed by Buell captures the federal garrison at Munfordville moves out of the way, logistics basically logistics prevent him from doing so buell enters louisville there's a period of about a week where both sides kind of regroup trying to figure out what they're doing bragg realizes the kentuckians are not joining us decides to install the governor goes and does that counting on buell taking time to refit buell in less than a week moves out with a new army and chases into the central bluegrass after basically a week of maneuvering which includes the uh, aborted installation of the Confederate governor. Um, they meet outside of Perryville on the morning of October 8th, 1862. Um, there's some initial fighting in the morning, particularly Phil Sheridan's division. Bragg, we've talked a bit about this already, had ordered an offensive, didn't hear one, came down, said we're going to attack, attack the northern wing of the Federal Army, which included one of my ancestors in the 21st Wisconsin. Um, and then at two o'clock, they launch a series of attacks. There's about 16,000 Confederates on the field. Just about everybody's going to get engaged against the 13,000 men of Alexander McCook's Corps. In five hours of fighting, they're going to push them back a mile, hang on by the skin of their teeth to the key Dixville crossroads, which had they lost, they would have been surrounded and probably destroyed. And darkness ends the fighting after five hours. 7,500 men killed, wounded, captured, or missing in that five hours. 1,500 men an hour one of the worst per hour casualty rates of the entire Civil War. That night, Bragg finally realizes what the situation is, begins a retreat. Buell pursues. Bragg ultimately retreats out of uh, Kentucky by Halloween, and um, Buell's army has broken off the pursuit by mid-October. So that, in a nutshell, is the Kentucky campaign. Ten, ten, uh, ten weeks in what, two, three minutes? 
You sound as though you've perhaps spent some time on the battlefield interpreting events there. Uh, just a little bit. Just, once upon a time. A and, and, and for folks who don't know, Chris actually used to be the site manager there at, uh, at the Perryville Battlefield once upon a time. That was like a whole lifetime ago by now, it seems. It was. It was uh, 2005 to 2008. So I just realized that I left 15 years ago. Wow. It doesn't feel like that at all. Wow. <laughs> so Cecily, as Chris has uh, just boiled this down to the nuts for us, um, as you think about that action, anything stand out for you as something that we should really pay attention to? It's a, I think the sort of, there's a glimpse of Phil Sheridan um, sort of during the battle. I think that stands out. Um, you start to see little Phil a little bit come into his own Um he certainly kind of isn't what he will be by the time of like, you know, 1864 in the Valley, but um, you get a little bit of little Phil, um, which I've always found really interesting. Um, I was just thinking, um, obviously I haven't spent, uh, uh, I've, I've been to Perryville a couple of times and, and really enjoyed it. But the first, uh, the first major paper I wrote in college, I, I wanted to do an independent study in the civil war. Um, so I wrote a paper on Confederate and union press responses to Kentucky campaign. And uh, I was just thinking that was a decade ago. So that was the fall 2013 semester that I, I wrote this sort of paper. And and uh, it was funny. And um, I don't think he'd be uh, uh, embarrassed if I said this. I, I did that with, with Dr. Gary Gallagher. And uh, at the end of the semester, I, you know, I, he'd let me do this paper and he'd sort of sort of very kindly put up with my bizarre interest in Braxton Bragg. And then he said, all right, so here's the here's the part where I tell you that as an undergraduate at Adams State College, um, and I won't say the year because that would embarrass him. Um, the first major paper I wrote on the Civil War was about press responses to the Kentucky campaign of 1862. Um, so, so there's a there's something there. There's a there's a there's a thread there. But um, but yeah, in 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 direct response to the question, um, uh, Sheridan's little appearance, I think, um, something something worth noticing, and then. You know, I tend to look at those those bigger picture um, kind of questions. Um, I'd be interested to hear um, Chris's view of Kirby Smith. I think he gets erased a little bit um, in all of this, but he's a key part of this Kentucky campaign. He wins that battle out in Richmond. And, and it always seemed to me that um, he wasn't uncooperative. It was just uncoordinated, which I think is is the best word to describe um, the Confederate military approach. So they had all these independent commands and theaters and and loosely gave people authority and we'll see it again with joe johnston in 1863 um sort of uh you know had the confederacy actually gotten its communication in order uh, i wonder if they could have done better but um it, again it's a it's a contingency a counterfactual that, that we can only speculate chris uh kirby smith Edmund Kirby Smith is an interesting guy, and you're right, Cicely. He 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 loomed larger in contemporary eyes than he does today. He was the last brigade on the field at First Manassas, and he became known as the Blucher of Manassas and was a one of the early Confederate national heroes. He and actually, I would argue, he and Stonewall Jackson were probably the two great Confederate national heroes to come out of the First Battle of Manassas. He ends up in East Tennessee. Kirby Smith has an ego about him, but he's a he's a good soldier. He's got a smart, strategic brain. It's actually his idea to go into Kentucky when they meet, when he and Bragg meet, and they're trying to figure out what to do and where to launch a counteroffensive. Kirby Smith's the one who says, let's go into Kentucky. I think there's real opportunity up here. And so he goes north. He wins the probably the greatest one-sided Confederate victory of the war at Richmond. 
Um, so, you know, that that's saying something right there about his tactical prowess. Then he moves in, conquers Lexington. You know, his ego allows him to start thinking about, you know, he's making marches and he starts comparing himself to Xenophon and, you know, some of the Athenian campaigns and things like, you know, see himself in world historical views. But in the absence of communication, in the absence of any additional guidance, he is focused on hanging on to the central bluegrass, you know, trying to repel the Federals as best he can, you know, and then he comes back out. And then in 1863, he's the guy in the in the Trans-Mississippi for the rest of the war, which most people forget about. But that's a position out there that is military, political and he's basically the military governor of those states with all that that means uh, once the Mississippi River's cut. You know, and there's a reason they call it Kirby Smithdom out there. And it's, of course, you know, people, when you're focused solely on the battlefronts in the, you know, in the Western theater and the Eastern theater, the Trans-Mississippi gets forgotten. But he was, he was a major figure in the war. And he deserves, he deserves a higher profile than he's gotten. Did the man have his limitations? Absolutely but he deserves a higher profile than he's gotten. That's for sure. And he is, he's a major figure in the Kentucky expedition, even if he's not present at Perryville. It's interesting, especially when you talk about uh, kind of that disconnectedness uh, of the commands. And I, you know, when I think of, of Kirby Smith going to the, the trans Mississippi and in some ways, Jefferson Davis kind of creates these silos as a way to avoid having to deal with command issues and difficult personalities, because certainly uh, a more a better coordinated defense of Vicksburg would have required both east and west banks of the river, but because Kirby Smith had command on the west uh, on the you know, the west bank, he wasn't subservient to any orders from the east bank, and it was just like, well, let's make these suggestions, and as a result, that defense really created problems. And uh, so you kind of seen that early on with Kirby Smith and and Bragg uh, at Perryville, you know, that's a problem that's going to continue on and, and create problems for us. Um, Chris, let me kind of come back to you, um, you know, going back to the battlefield itself, um, as, as someone who has spent a lot of time on the field there, is there a particular place that that you would send folks to better understand the action that took place there? There are two places that I'd send people for different for different reasons. Um, the first one is, is it is one of the most intricate pieces of ground on any Civil War battlefield I've come across. There is a position in the center of the Union line. And I, I, I'm going to try and explain it. I'm, you can look at it on a map till your eyes fall out. You won't get it. You have to stand there to see what I'm about to explain to you. There's three ridges. Federals were on one ridge. Confederates were on the other ridge. And then the ridge in the center poked up just high enough so that if you were on the federal side, it looked it disappeared. It looked like it was one slope. And the same optical illusion from the Confederates. So the Confederates, when they attacked from one ridge to the next, the artillery bombarded the center ridge and found all kinds. We did archaeology out there years ago, found all kinds of fired ammunition and all this other stuff. And like, why are they shooting into this hill when nobody was there? Then we stood on the battery position and we realized it looked like there was one depression. They got a real education when the infantry came across and went into that depression and the skirmishers went to the top and looked up. We're not at the federal line. And then they had to go down at point blank range against the Federals. And it was just, it was a nasty slaughterhouse where a, a brigade of Mississippians just got absolutely shot to pieces. 
um, you, I can describe that to you. It is so powerful when you go out there and see it. And it is the one of the finest illustrations of how the ground is a document, just like any photographs or maps, letters, anything like that. The other place that I would encourage people to go and to really understand the battlefield is to go to um, at either Starkweather Hill or the Dixville Crossroads itself, which is the high water mark of the Confederacy in the West. Thanks to the Civil War Trust has all been saved now. I'm so thankful for um, because it's really the, the climactic part of the battle. It is one of those places where what Cecily said is, and what we were talking about earlier is right. The fighting staying quality of the federal soldiers, it came down to individual regiments. It, even on the Confederate side, it was no longer the generals, the, the, the senior generals, the division commanders, the corps commanders. It was brigade, regiment, company commanders doing what needed to be done with the ba battle in the balance. And it was nip and tuck all the way to the end and until basically darkness ended the fighting and Polk called it off because he'd almost been captured by an Indiana unit. Um, it's just an incredibly, and, and plus when you stand up there, it's one of the highest pieces on the battlefield. So you can see, you can get a real panoramic view of the ground and, and the previous lines as everybody fell back to the crossroads and kind of how it all came together right at that key point. So that's that I would highly recommend if, if anybody's out ever out in central Kentucky and you have time, even just for a couple of hours to go out to Perryville, I highly, highly recommend it. It's wonderfully well-preserved when you're there, you're in 1862 and it's just incredibly evocative place. And it's, it, like I said, some of the most intricate ground I've ever seen on a battlefield, civil war battlefield. Nestle, you said that you've been out there a couple of times. What was it that drew you out to Perryville in the first place? And, you know, what kind of takeaways have you had? Um, I it was because I knew I was going to write that paper. So I I had uh, taken a Civil War class my first year in college, and then I'd worked in North Dakota, um, out in Theodore Roosevelt National Park, um, during the summer. And then my dad was going to drive me back to Virginia for college, and I said, "Can we go through Kentucky specifically? I want to go to Stones River, and I want to go to Perryville." And at that point, I'd been to most of the Virginia battlefields, Gettysburg, Antietam. Um, and so on. I'd yet to do a lot of the really far west ones. Shiloh came much later for me and, and you know, Wilson's Creek and Pea Ridge even later than that. Um, and I planned this trip and we sort of went down and swooped down and did Chickamauga, Chattanooga and then went back up to Charlottesville. But what struck me about both Stones River and Perryville is that they are two, um, as Chris said, um, of the most sort of picturesque um, battlefields I've ever seen. They are small enough that you can digest them in a day and that's not an insult it's it's amazing that you can go out there in a day and get a real sense of place um get a real sense of of the action and the fighting there's nice monumentation there's not overwhelming monumentation um at both of those sites and and chris can correct me here but i think perryville might be among them the highest percentage of actual ground preserved and as you say in terms of true. image yeah i mean it's true. amazing yeah. It's a real it's a real success story. You know, there's a partnership between the Civil War Trust, Commonwealth of Kentucky, the Perryville Enhancement Project, which I was the executive director of for a time. Um, you know, the local county, the local city. I mean, just just all of this working together and what preservationists working all the way up and down can do. And of course, the American Battlefield Protection Program. It, you know, you talk about wanting to preserve a battlefield, create a critical mass. In 1991, the battlefield was 98 acres preserved. Today, it's over 1,500 and counting. And it is a huge, if you want to see what battlefield preservation can be, 
Perryville, Kentucky is, you're right, Sicily is a tremendous example. I think having the battlefield makes it easier for us to, to visit there, walk the ground, understand the story, be connected with the story. Uh, and yet Perryville tends to get overlooked in the larger narrative of the fall of 62. Well, why is it that we don't hold Perryville up the way that we might hold up uh, other actions that take place uh, during that time of the war? Uh, uh, Chris, I'll ask you, and then and Cecily, I'll give you the chance to chime in too. I was just going to defer to Cecily because of the uh, paper, but I'll take <laughs> it first. Honestly, you know, I, it's, the, it's the problem with a lot of Western theater battlefields is you don't have Gardner, Gardner's photo studios nearby. You don't have the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, literally in there, you know, following the armies and telegraphing back virtually the same day what's going on. It's the from a press perspective, but also from a photography perspective, um, it is very difficult to get the same kind of documentation that you get in the East. And then you think about when this battle's fought. It's three weeks exactly since the Battle of Antietam. When it hits the press, it hits the press competing with those pictures from the battlefield at Antietam, which shocked the United States, right? It's one of those watershed moments where it really brings warfare for the first time to the home front through the medium of photography. You know, and I would argue it's a it's the first in a long line of dominoes ultimately to, you know, Vietnam, it fought in the living rooms and so on and so forth. That's a whole conversation for a whole other time. But you're having to compete with that. How do you compete with that? You know, just from a national attention perspective. And so, and, and to be honest, it's it's a complicated battle. The Federals win by sticking it one round longer than the Confederates. If you look at the big picture, I think Sicily's assessment is correct. The Confederates win the battle in isolation. They drive the Cook's Army Corps back. They almost wreck it. They manage to inflict a thousand more federal losses than they sustain. In isolation, it's a Confederate victory. But the Federals win the campaign. But that makes it complicated. It's not a nice, easy, neat outcome. And so you put all that together, and that's kind of why it's kind of why it's forgotten to an extent to a large extent Desley, your thoughts um yeah i think absolutely i agree with with everything there um and and to kind of really underscore it um um well uh, two points first historians probably don't write about it all that much um our good friend chris excluded um because it's got difficult people i mean um braxton bragg has dissuaded many a historian uh, from their quest to better understand the civil war just by sheer force of his terrible personality so so i think for historians that's part of it but what i'll say about sort of in its own time of course um its importance was not lost on abraham lincoln who was constantly looking at kentucky and tennessee as as chris said at the top of the podcast as the great prize um that they needed to control to win the war and and Lincoln can never quite understand why not only sort of the major U.S. newspapers, but even the international observers never wanted to pay attention to what was going on out West. And he says it, you know, he puts it sort of perfectly. He says, I can't understand why all of these victories that we've racked up at Donaldson and Henry and Shiloh and Perryville and Stones River should matter so little and a single half defeat at the East should loom so large. 
Um, if you look at the West in 1862, momentum, all on the Union side. Um, looks like they're going to keep cruising to accomplishing Winfield Scott's Anaconda Plan, which is really mostly about that Western theater. Um, Virginia doesn't have a ton to do with the Anaconda Plan, unless you're talking about the coast, in which case that's a naval issue, right? Um, so, so the West matters so much for the grand strategy of the Union war effort. And Lincoln constantly points to this and saying, we're doing everything we need to do to make this come true. And all you guys can focus on is the fact that Robert E. Lee keeps walloping us um, in Virginia. And uh, and uh, I think that that's really important. I also think it's um, sort of one thing we haven't mentioned. Um, Kentucky is hugely important. Um, and there's a lot of pressure for these union officers in Kentucky. And one thing I think about, you know, Don Carlos Buell, he's under pressure. Um, and but but Kentucky killed William Tecumseh Sherman or nearly did. Right. When he was put in charge of Kentucky in 1861, he almost went crazy. I mean, he says it right. Um, and, and God bless William Tecumseh Sherman. He will admit anything. Uh, he has no filter. You know, Kentucky almost killed him. The pressure of having to 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 manage Kentucky and knowing how important it was to the Union war effort, it broke him and it took him a while to come back. He had to go through the Ulysses S. Grant rehab program, which is, you know, <laughs> um, quite, 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 quite remarkable. But um uh, but yeah, I think um, we kind of lose a sense of there was a lot of pressure, um, at least on the union side, to make this happen. Um, and the fact that we don't give it enough attention, I think we lose sight of that. Um, and it makes it seem like everything that happens in the West is really all about Vicksburg. Um, in some ways it is, but but all of this stuff that's happening in Kentucky, trying to control the Ohio River and make inroads into the Confederacy along those those riverine routes... It's all about this. And Lincoln knows it. I um, mean, his war planners know it, but but nobody in the media will pay any attention to it. And uh, and Chris, I mean, I mean, you, you know a little bit about journalism. Why is that? It's, you know, the population centers are all in the east. That's where all your readers are. Uh, you've got the door on your the war on your doorstep with all of those readers. And so, of course, that's the bright, shiny thing that's right in front of you instead of sort of this off far away abstract sort of thing. So one of the things that really helped me um, better appreciate the implications of Perryville was actually taking a look at James Longstreet in the wake of Chancellorsville, where he's talking about trying to take the divisions of Hood and Pickett, go out west, link up with Joe Johnson, and hit Rosecrans there at Murfreesboro, and then drive north again into Kentucky and across the Ohio River. And, and you know, it sounds like a big grandiose plan, uh, and, and of course it was. But knowing, you know, kind of looking at Longstreet's rationale and what the implications would have been and had the Confederates got up into Ohio at that point, um, that makes me understand just what a close thing Perryville was. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bragg, although he wins on the battlefield, he pulls out, and as Chris points out, the, the Federals win the campaign. But Bragg sort of gifts them, at least in part, this victory that could have had incredible ramifications if he had shown up on the banks of the Ohio River. That boggles my mind. What the Mississippi is to the south, the Ohio is to the north. And if you cut the Ohio, the main supply base for the entire federal war effort west of the Appalachians is Louisville. If you cut the Ohio... Anywhere around the city of Louisville, everything downstream withers and dies on the vine for lack of supplies, which includes Grant's Vicksburg campaign. So it, I mean, this, yeah, th this is not, 
that's not a quixotic dream. You know, it there was a there was a, a sound strategic calculus. It was the same calculus that Kirby Smith and Bragg were using in 1862. As a matter of fact, when I did my Tullahoma book, I found in September of 1863, right before they figured out Rosecrans was advancing on Chattanooga, there was a message sent to Bragg saying, "Hey." Do you think we can try a Kentucky expedition? Because we were basically in the same situation the year before, at least the battle lines were. Do you think we can try Kentucky this year again? And by that point, you know, uh, Burnside is there preparing the Knoxville expedition and all this other stuff. And basically Bragg's like, no, there's a lot more Yankees up there. It's way too strong. We can't, And we, we've got our own problems. We can't do it this year. But it's, the dream of, of Confederate Kentucky doesn't die until the Confederacy dies in 1865. That's because there's so much good fried chicken there. And of course, everybody wants a little bit of it. Best fried chicken. It's the horses and bourbon, man. That's what it is. <laughs> Cecily, Chris, I want to thank you both for being with us today. This has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, so Chris you, is Chris. the uh, uh, former chief historian, author of Battle of Perrysville, Battling for the Bluegrass. I urge you to pick that up if you're looking for a great read about uh, Perryville. And uh, Cecily, of course, our chief historian. Thank you both for being with us. So I'm Chris Bukowski for Emerging Civil War. On behalf of Chris and Cecily, thanks so much for being with us. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. And before we head out, let me just say thank you to our producer, Edward Alexander, our associate producer, Sarah K. Byerly, and our sound engineer, Jackson Mikowski, for piecing all of our pieces together. Thanks also to the Second South Carolina String Band for our theme music. You can find them on Facebook and on YouTube. Search for Second South Carolina String Band. And don't forget to join us online at EmergingCivilWar.com. More than 30 historians providing free content Every day, lots of cool stuff from cool writers with various backgrounds and interests. It's a great conversation, and we want you part of it. Join us at EmergingCivilWar.com. If you like what you've heard here on the Emerging Civil War podcast, please don't forget to share, like, subscribe, tell your friends, help us spread the story of America's defining event. On behalf of Chris Kolakowski and Cecily Nelson-Zander, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks so much for being with us here on the Emerging Civil War podcast. We'll see you online and on the battlefield. <laughs>